Welcome to Fronteras, a program that explores issues at the border and beyond through the lens of arts, culture, and history. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Over 2 million migrants have sought asylum at the U.S. southern border so far this fiscal year, according to data from U.S. Customs and Border Protection. They're from Central America, Venezuela, Colombia, Cuba, Haiti, Afghanistan, Ukraine. Nonprofits have been overwhelmed in meeting the physical, mental, nutritional, and transportation needs of an increasingly desperate population. These groups are delivering this aid while also warding off increasingly harmful and hateful anti-immigrant rhetoric. One of the nonprofits in this struggle is the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. It got its start in New York in 1939, assisting Lutheran refugees fleeing Nazi Germany. It's expanded its reach over the last eight decades to serve migrants from around the world. The group's president and CEO, Krish Omara Vignaraja, says they provide the long welcome to refugees and asylum seekers. So not just that emergency assistance of putting housing over their heads when they first arrive or putting food in their mouths, but really making sure that they have a support system for the months and the years to come, um, making sure that they can land jobs. For us, we believe immigration is a win-win for the country on so many levels, but particularly at a time when inflation still remains high, uh, when we have over 10 million jobs across the country that are unfilled, it's a real opportunity to set up our clients for economic success and self-sufficiency, but also to allow them to become valuable members of our communities. But aside from the programming with clients, another key focus of ours is the advocacy. Just knowing that, you know, we haven't had real immigration reform for three decades, and we know that the system is dysfunctional, and it has been for a long time. It's no one particular party that we can entirely place blame on. And so for us, it's also about taking that programmatic expertise and translating it into policy change. Well, it is a political game trying to get immigration reform through because every election cycle you see immigration come to the forefront of that argument for and against. Um, and it seems like that's one of the main reasons that people go out to vote because of maybe a candidate stance on immigration. So maybe in reality, they're not really looking for immigration reform. I'm wondering if your organization participates in any lobbying efforts to try to alter that, because, again, it all comes down to votes and that election cycle and what gets your soundbite on the news quickly, but ultimately it, they're playing with people's lives. That's right. And our advocacy efforts are really centered around two aspects. So one is trying to convince our political leaders to do the right thing, but also knowing that there are political headwinds that unfortunately are a bit out of our control. And it does feel like such a uphill battle. I'll even have private conversations with you know members of Congress where we're in alignment even if they've made anti-immigration stances publicly. But then when I'll say, you know, could you say anything based on our conversation publicly, they'll sort of laugh because I realize that they also know the risks of a primary, um, you know, as a result of safe seats these days and redistricting efforts, et cetera. And then our other strategy is realizing that we can play a role in political headwinds, but that means actually taking our message to the public so that the public doesn't just hear this narrative of immigrants being you know, smugglers of fentanyl and the source behind the opioid epidemic, which is not true. 
or that immigrants are criminals who are making communities unsafe because, again, the data has shown that they actually make our communities safer. And so our goal has also been to just make the case, to make the case to the American public based on the history of our country as in part a nation of immigrants, the national security reasons, um, even looking recently at Ukraine and Afghanistan as examples of why it is important to our national security and foreign policy. It's a matter of faith for so many communities. Every time I come to Texas, I am so inspired by so many different congregations and ministries coming together. And then, of course, folks who aren't called by faith, maybe secular, who are driven by this work. And so that's where I think we have our work cut out for us. It's not going to be easy. But I really do believe that in the long term, just as we've had xenophobia in the past, that we just need to tell people who we are, what we do, and most importantly, who our clients are and why they're fleeing and why America needs to be a beacon of hope still. Well, let's talk about one group of migrants in particular, and those are the ones that you see uh, attempting to cross into the United States, across the Rio Grande, across the southwest border. And here in Texas, Operation Lone Star, so many legal challenges against it. You know, migrants are being arrested for trespassing, they're being deported, or they're being bused to democratically run cities. Families recently have been found to be separated. Uh, Families that do make it to the river, they're often greeted by razor wire on the other side or buoys that have the saw blades in between those ports of entry. What are your organization's efforts in trying to counter that? Because again, that all also leads into that really harmful rhetoric of calling immigrants invaders, which Republican leaders have done, and they continue to say so over and over, despite the fact that that kind of language has been shown to lead to massacres like the one that occurred in El Paso just four years ago. So can you talk a little bit about uh, those efforts in Texas to try to address those countless issues of that fight for uh, getting people to be able to apply for asylum as they have the right to do? Norma, it's such an important question because I do think the dynamics of what we're seeing here in Texas are not unique in some ways, but obviously it does feel like the front lines of this ongoing battle. First, in terms of the rhetoric, it is incredibly harmful. I do think that it leads to shootings in situations where people's lives, families, children are put at risk as a result. It's also inaccurate. The idea that a country as prosperous as ours, I still believe the greatest superpower in the world, can't handle immigrants who are seeking asylum, who are coming from the most desperate of circumstances, who want to make a better life for their kids here, that we're not able to do that, that this language of invasion suggests that it's chaos, that it's uncontrollable, that it's not manageable, ignores the fact that at roughly the same time period, we had 7 million Ukrainian refugees go into Europe. And, you know, these are countries, our allies, who stepped up knowing that they needed to be global humanitarian leaders. And I know that our country can do better. The other thing I would say is Operation Lone Star is a waste of taxpayer dollars. I think when you consider the fact that $4 billion has already been spent, that the legislature has now authorized an additional $6 billion, that $10 billion are being put towards things like creating a ruse of a barrier that is just 0.01% of the actual Texas-Mexico border suggests that 
it's ineffective. It was constructed to be ineffective. It was entirely political gamesmanship that you have Texas patrol authorities removing men, separating them from their women and children. I think is an important fact to recognize that, again, family separation is happening. And I hope that there is the same outrage that we saw in 2018. And then just finally, you know, these efforts to build uh, barriers, walls, put razor wire, try to encourage families to take riskier pathways is just not an effective or humane strategy. And so we've got to get our acts together and figure out how do we create a border where people who are coming for economic reasons don't feel forced to come that way. And instead that we actually have economic visas, pathways by which they can come. You know, why are we seeing Ukrainians, Indians, Chinese who are coming to the southern border? Well, it's because other pathways have become dysfunctional and backlogged. So that we can create a system where if you're an asylum seeker, if that is really your only pathway into the country, then you can come and exercise your legal right to seek asylum. But the reason we're seeing an influx at the southern border is because across the board, holistically, we do not have a system that works for us. Well, let's talk about another group of migrants. You mentioned them, the Ukrainians, the Afghans. I know so many of those refugees now make their home here in San Antonio. And I know that you have established an office here in San Antonio as of last year. Uh, How are you addressing their needs? They don't know how long they'll be able to work, uh, how long that humanitarian parole will last. So there must be just so much uncertainty that your organization is seeing with this community. It is so tough to meet with our Afghan clients because they are dealing not just with the fear of what will happen with the family that they left behind in Afghanistan in terms of Taliban retribution. They are also facing the fear, as you described, of not knowing whether their children can remain in safety on American soil, whether when humanitarian parole runs out, if they'll be returned into harm's way. And that's obviously not our country's way of fulfilling its promise, which was that we would stand by them just as they stood by us during America's longest war. I think it's important that, uh, you know, the audience understand that the Afghan Adjustment Act is something that was introduced last year into Congress. It would give our allies a permanent pathway of protection. Um, You know, it didn't get through, even though it had bipartisan support. This year, it has been reintroduced with double the number of sponsors. It would be unprecedented for Congress not to pass this. It would mean that this would be the first evacuee population in modern history that wouldn't have permanent protection on U.S. soil. And I think that will have massive repercussions in the long term. Um, Some of our military and national security officials were the most vocal during the evacuation and since because they know that it's not just the right thing to do, but it's the smart thing to do. Because if we don't, the next time we have to fight a 21st century war, God forbid, we will need to rely on local support. And if America's word doesn't matter, or, you know, essentially what we see with the Afghan population means that we have failed to fulfill our promise, then I worry about how we'll potentially recruit people to our side. Krish Omara Vignaraja is president and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. She previously held positions in the White House as policy director for First Lady Michelle Obama and in the U.S. State Department, where she coordinated the development of multiple programs, including those concerning immigration. 
And a note, a few days after I taped my conversation with Vignaraja, the Department of Homeland Security announced a redesignation and extension of temporary protected status for Afghan refugees. About 80,000 Afghan refugees can continue living and working in the U.S. for 18 more months. When we come back, Vignaraja says government efforts have failed in streamlining the asylum-seeking process. On a daily basis, I hear from someone, a family, who's saying, you know, they sit and live on the app. Haitians who have said, well, CBP-1 app isn't in, um, you know, Haitian Creole, so how am I supposed to use that if that is the only narrow avenue in? Our conversation continues next on Fronteras. I'm taco journalist Mando Rayo. On the next Proximo Tacos of Texas, redefining Tex-Mex. Is it Tex-Mex or is it Texas Mexican? We sit down with chef, food writer, and filmmaker Adan Medrano to redefine what Tex-Mex is and isn't. You can find Tacos of Texas on KUT.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fronteras. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. DACA, Title 42, Title 8, remain in Mexico. Immigration policy and executive orders come fast and furious. It's hard to keep track. President and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, Krish Omara Vignaraja, says if you think it's confusing, imagine trying to navigate the complex legal system as a non-English-speaking migrant. Truly, I think putting yourselves in the position of someone who has undertaken a thousand-mile treacherous journey, who doesn't speak English, who is not a lawyer, you can understand how it feels like they're facing a wall. And sometimes when people say to me, well, why don't they come the right way? I have to just underscore, one, there isn't a right way. And two, if there is, it's not accessible to them. No one really knows what's going on. So after Title 42 is removed, there is still Title 8, which is in effect. So I think it's important to underscore that it is not, you know, these claims of Biden's created an open, open border. border. Everybody can come. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Come on in, um, if only people would spend, you know, a day <laughs> in Ciudad Juarez or Reynosa, they would understand that that is, you know, nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, so people, you know, have to use the CBP-1 app, which is candidly difficult to navigate. There have been far fewer appointments available than people who are seeking to use the system as it's been described to them to access asylum. Um, And so it's still been very difficult. It is troubling. Yes, it is better than four years ago where Remain in Mexico essentially what was a policy that prevented people from crossing the border and kept them in harm's way. But still, we have hundreds, uh, if not thousands of people who are waiting on the Mexico side, who have waited for uh, weeks, if not months, who have experienced violence as a result of the conditions that they are kind of squatting in. And so it is difficult because on a daily basis, I hear from someone, a family who's saying, you know, they sit and live on the app. Haitians who have said, well, CBP-1 app isn't in, um, you know, Haitian Creole. So how am I supposed to use that if that is the only narrow avenue in? And so it remains troubling what we're seeing at the border. These days, you're seeing more people who will actually come through visas and overstay because the desperation of families means that they are trying however they can to seek refuge. And, And that's obviously not a sustainable system. 
I mean, and I've spoken to many people who are in that position, either they're DACA recipients or they're in the country undocumented, and they have that lingering fear of, if I get stopped because my taillight is broken, that could very well end my qualifications for DACA, or that might you know, get me removed from the country. So even the people who are here, whether it's the right way or the wrong way, as you were saying, there is still that sense of uncertainty. There's never that sense of security that I take for granted myself. It was heartbreaking as a mom to hear how policies affect these families personally. You know, when there were some announcements during the Trump administration of crackdowns, we would see it at playgrounds because parents would be so fearful, right, that they wouldn't allow their kids to be kids again. And I I think that's where it's so troubling because it's not just the anxiety of, you know, as you described it, every action, whether that would lead to immigration enforcement. It's also the heartbreaking stories that I hear all too often of my mother's dying of cancer. I would love to say goodbye in person, and I can't because I know that that's the choice I have to make between maintaining my immigration status or hiding in the shadows because that's what I've been forced to do or saying goodbye to the parent who who raised them. And no human being should be faced with that choice, but that's all too often what we hear. Well, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how that informs your work with this organization? Yeah, I appreciate that question. So... My family was part of the religious and ethnic minority in Sri Lanka, so that's where I was born. They knew as tensions rose in the country between the kind of the majority and the minority that they had to get out knowing that they had two very young kids. They really sought refuge in any country that would receive us. And unfortunately, at the time, the only country that would was um, Nigeria because they were recruiting teachers. So my parents had jobs, plane tickets, and our bags were packed to move there to actually northern Nigeria where we didn't know it at the time, of course, but 276 girls got kidnapped just for going to school by Boko Haram. And interestingly enough, it's a Texas tie because my mother's oldest brother came to Texas as a neurosurgeon. In many ways, it feels like time hasn't changed, mm-hmm. both in terms of the teacher shortages that lead school systems to recruit any which way they can, but also the shortages of medical personnel, where particularly in rural areas, there's such a desperation. So my uncle moved to a rural part of Texas, and he had sponsored the family that felt like more of a heyday of immigration compared to today. And so what we thought was a dormant visa application that was never going to get approved, it did just in time. And so we ended up coming to the U.S. My dad interviewed essentially overnight with the Baltimore City school system. So that's why we moved to Baltimore. And I'm really so grateful for the opportunity to lead Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service because my parents' generation, or just maybe my parents, were that generation where they didn't want their kids to identify as immigrants. So we were raised speaking perfect English, and they didn't want us to think of ourselves as immigrants. And so I never really focused on the issue. And then, of course, when I was in the White House and at the State Department, 
spent more time working on refugee and immigration issues. And then, of course, with the previous administration, I just realized that you can't take any of these programs and our warm welcome of immigrants for granted. So it's really been a blessing to start with the organization in 2019. And I joke that I'm the head of an 84-year-old startup because when I started, we were about 75, 80 staff, a $47 million budget. We've expanded to um, now 450 staff, $219 million budget. And it's just important to note that because I, I feel that there are so many communities across the country who agree that we just need to have an orderly system of immigration that works for us, for these families. Uh, kind of a side question here. You were, you were mentioning that you were brought up not to think of yourself as an immigrant. So many Mexican-American, ethnic Mexican people here in Texas, you know, they're brought up speaking English because their parents perhaps were punished for speaking English or for speaking Spanish, rather. And so their kids were going to learn English and that's all they were going to learn. And there's a bit of shame that they feel maybe later in life for not maybe connecting with that culture. Did you kind of have that same feeling? Yeah. Later in life? Yeah, and especially since I've had children. I feel bad for my daughters because I feel like I have now put the burden on them to carry on the culture. Um, so while I I did take a course one semester of Tamil when I was in, <laughs> in law school, I am terrible with languages. <laughs> and I felt so bad for the professor who thought, oh, she comes from a native-speaking family. She's going to be great. And every day I could see the disappointment in his <laughs> eyes as he would shake his head. Um, my husband is Irish Catholic. You know, sometimes people will look at our children and they'll actually assume that they're Latina because they're mixed race. And and it's wonderful when I realize that my cohort of parents, one parent will speak in only one language and the other parent will speak in another language or they'll hire if they have means, a nanny who speaks a certain language. And it's wonderful to see sort of the embrace of diversity today in a way that was different from the past. But yes, I look back and I do regret that there are things like, you know, learning the language. I can understand it when my parents speak, but I can't speak it myself. If I do, I butcher it. Um, so people suggest that I should stop talking. Um, <laughs> but I do think that it's the richness of our culture. And if we forget it, if we somehow discredit it or make it seem punish-worthy, then we'll be, I think, less rich as a country. And again, it goes back down to immigration and refugees here in this country. I mean, this is such a diverse nation, and that's something we should be celebrating. That's right. And I think it's, you know, wonderful examples of where people have said, well, what happens for a day? Immigrants stopped working. The restaurants you know and love would shut down. The food on your table wouldn't exist. The prices you pay for goods will significantly go up. And I think that we've taken it for granted. And now is the time for us to understand that we shouldn't because it truly is in jeopardy. You know, you look at some of the polling in Texas and nationally, and you realize that right now we're losing the narrative because we're not as full-throated in our defense and our proactive advocacy for why immigration makes us stronger as a country. And I think, uh, you know, you turn on the TV and you hear about the crisis that's happening at our border. What people don't understand is the slow-burning crisis that we face is a demographic cliff. We have the lowest birth rate since the census has been tracking this issue. We are not going to remain the economic superpower that we are unless we lean on immigration. Medicare and Social Security will not stay afloat unless we lean on immigration. And other countries have wised up to this. Our northern neighbor in Canada is now recruiting from our country. Japan is facing economic stagnation where they have more adult diapers than baby diapers. China has gone from a one-child policy to now encouraging and frankly even like financing IVF. 
So I think that this is where we've got to understand immigration is not charity. It's necessity. Krish Omara Vignaraja is president and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. She previously held positions in the White House as policy director for First Lady Michelle Obama and in the U.S. State Department, where she coordinated the development of multiple programs, including those concerning immigration. Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service opened a welcome center in San Antonio in 2022. It provides trauma-informed services to asylum seekers, unaccompanied children, and humanitarian parolees. Thanks for joining us for Fronteras. Fronteras is produced by Norma Martinez and Marian Navarro. Our executive producer is Dan Katz. Our editor is Fernando Ortiz Jr. Charanga Cakewalk composed our theme music. Hear past episodes at tpr.org and on the Fronteras podcast. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio.